it's a meaningful thing to me to come before you to preach the word as a member of this church. This is not the first time that I've preached here, but, but it really is. It's a meaningful thing. It's a comforting thing to me that what I am doing here is not fundamentally standing before you as the authority, as uh, someone who has something that is otherwise not given to you. I am here only to unpack and to explain and to apply what the Holy Word of God says and that I am here actually in submission to you as a church. That's your role to hold me accountable if what I am saying is not in accordance with the Word. It is my job to hold you accountable as I preach it to you, to preach the whole counsel of it, to preach it in its fullness and in its power. Last week, Dr. Fowler preached from Acts 3, the story of Peter and John healing the crippled man at uh, the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. It's the first of a number of healing miracles throughout the book of Acts, and in some ways it's, it sets the tone and the pattern for those miracles, for all the miracles that follow it. The passage we're going to read today is really just a continuation of that story. There's no time that passes in between, and these events follow directly from that healing. It's almost like the way that Jesus, after he told a parable, would sometimes explain the meaning of that parable to his disciples. Last week we heard the explanation of the miracle to the crowds who had witnessed it, and this week we will hear the explanation of this miracle, of this working out of the kingdom of the gospel message, not to the followers of Christ, but to those who have actually arrested the apostles, to those who would fight against it. Let's stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the beauty and the goodness and the truth of your word. I pray that you would show us that beauty, show us that goodness and the truth that you have given us in this wonderful text. Help us to understand it fully. Help us to to understand it with our hearts and with our minds and with our hands, that it might change us, that it might transform us, that it might lead us to glorify you, that it might lead us to love you and to love our neighbor. I pray this morning that you would bless the preaching of your word, that your spirit would be moving among us, and then all of this, that your name would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What we see in this text and what we see throughout Scripture is that when people encounter the gospel, they take one of two stances. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. It's the same message, it's the same power, it's the same Christ, and yet some receive it one way and some receive it another. Some receive it as the very scent, the very aroma of life, and some as a stench of death. When the apostles proclaimed the power and the resurrection of Christ, there were some who received this message one way and some who received it the other, some as life, some as death. We're told that when they preached this time in the temple, that there were many of those who heard the word and believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. That is an incredible work of the Spirit that he would bring such a great number at one time to faith. And yet at the same time, we see not only beautiful belief and wonderful and powerful change, we also see a direct and a, just a powerful rejection of the gospel. We're told that the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees were greatly annoyed when they heard the word, when they heard the message, and that they arrested Peter and John. Now, in light not only of the message of the gospel, but of a miracle that had clearly pointed to the gospel, a miracle that had been attested not only by these apostles, but by a multitude who had been there, a multitude who had seen this man unable to walk, not only for a short time, but for his whole life in the response to this great and really unquestionable miracle in their midst, their response was to be annoyed. Now you laugh because that is an incongruous, a wrong response to this. At least you would expect they aren't just annoyed, they are angry, they are afraid, they are confused. But no, the text clearly says they are annoyed, they're irritated. And so we ask, why is it that people, both at that time and today, why is it that people are not only angry at the gospel, but they are annoyed by it, they are irritated by the gospel? Why is it that these people, these priests, tried not only to ignore the gospel, but they tried actually to silence it? 
Of course, this is as true today as it was during the apostles' time. When people hear the true, the full message of the gospel, it's either the greatest of comforts to them or it's the greatest of offenses. We've all seen this at one point or another in our lives, where the same message will be preached. One person will receive it and say, thanks be to God, I'll put my faith in this Christ. I will change my life in reaction to this message. I will revel in the grace that I have been shown. And at the same time, in response to the same message, the same preacher, the same passage of Scripture, we will find some that react to it in a very different way, who will not only be angry, who will be irritated. We have to wonder, why is that? What is it that allows one to respond? What is it that allows one other to be irritated, to be angry, to be annoyed at the message? As we examine the book of Acts, this is one of the great challenges that we receive. We might ask, when I share the gospel, either by word or by deed, by the things I believe or by the things that I do, do I get this response? Are others irritated at me? In our culture, that is a cardinal sin. To irritate another people is almost worse than making them angry. (laughs) To be an irritation, to be an annoyance is not something that we desire, but Does the message that we believe, that we live out, and that we proclaim, does it bring about that response in other people? This is the question as we examine the book of Acts. Not whether we receive ultimately the same exact response, but does the gospel that we believe, the gospel that we preach, does it have that same sort of potency? Does it have that same sort of intensity of reality that brought across to people in that time this irritation Can you imagine in the ways that you are living, in the ways that you are sharing the gospel, can you imagine it creating that response of irritation, of of annoyance at you? And does that seem to be in line with what you desire? It's an odd thing to ask. Do you desire others to be annoyed with you? But in response to this passage, in response to this message, this is one of the questions we have to ask is, can I be as annoying as the apostles were? Meditate on that throughout the week. You know, write that down. It's not, it's not going to make it into a motivational you know, book or something, but, but mo- meditate on that. Am I as annoying as the apostles were? And I'm, am I annoying in the same way that the apostles were? Now, in the case of the trial in Acts 4, there are some clear reasons why this message would be an irritation and annoyance to the high priests, to those who heard it. You may have noticed between the arrest of Peter and John and the trial, the cast of characters changes a little bit. In the first instance, they are confronted by the priests, by the captain of the temple, by the Sadducees. And yet when they get to the trial, it's a different group. It says in verse 5, On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So there is this kind of intensification of the group that they have been brought before. The way it's translated actually kind of minimizes the amount of authority that was present, in fact. It makes it sound like Annas was the high priest, along with some others in his family, when in fact Annas hadn't been high priest for a little while. Um, It had been... I think about 10 years since his reign had ended. And the current high priest was the second man who was named, Caiaphas. 
And actually, the third man named John, it's likely a shortening of Jonathan, uh, who was a member of the high priestly family, who was going to be the next high priest. And so what we see here is not only a little bit of authority, this is the whole of Jewish religious authority present, past, present, and future high priests coming before them and confronting them, saying, what is this thing that you have done? What is this thing that you are preaching? It is an irritation to us. There's an incredible amount of authority packed into this trial, and it makes sense that they would be less than pleased by what they were seeing and hearing. The central message that the apostles were bringing was completely contrary to what the high priests believed in and what they stood for. You see, the high priests were members of a group called the Sadducees. You probably remember the Sadducees from the Gospels. They were frequently standing against Jesus, trying to trip him up and ask questions of him. And what the Sadducees were most known for was having a distinctive outlook on the Jewish religion. For one thing, they only believed in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. They rejected the prophets. They rejected the later histories. They, uh, they really thought that only those first five books were truly and fully inspired and should really guide the nation's life. Now, that makes sense for the people who are in charge of the temple, as those first five books are pretty concerned with uh, the Levites and the temple workers and the importance of the temple. The other thing that they were really well known for was their view on what happened to people when they died. See, the Pharisees had this idea that after you died, at a certain time, at a time that was to come, on the day of the Lord, they called it, and that the prophets referred to it, there would be a rebirth, there would be a resurrection of the dead. And yet the Sadducees said, no, when you die, that's it. There's no coming back. There's no rebirth. There's no resurrection. The end is the end. And finally, the Sadducees were very concerned with being a political power. They were in charge of the temple, but they were also the group that was most beloved by Rome. Right? Rome was pretty okay with these people because they weren't constantly fighting for resurrection or for uh, revolution. Right? They were okay with being a member of Rome as long as they kept their power. And so when the apostles come and they preach their message and they work the miracle that they preach, subtly and clearly in different ways, all of the things that the Sadducees, that the high priests stood for, are being rejected, not only in word, but by clear and visible signs. You see, if Jesus Christ died and rose again, then the question had to be asked, why would anyone continue to follow a priesthood that denied the resurrection of the dead? And now, you might say, okay, well, if they were just preaching it, you could argue against it, but in the sign that was done, in this miracle of healing the crippled man, this was essentially a visible representation, a visible sign of the message of the gospel. This is them saying, I see you who are unable to stand, unable to walk, unable to carry yourself through life. And what I'm going to do is reach down to you, fundamentally change you, heal you, and pick you up. It was a visible representation of that resurrection to life, of picking him up into life. Now, if Jesus offered himself up 
as the ultimate sacrifice, we also have to ask, what further need is there for a priesthood that cannot save, a priesthood that cannot reconcile people to their God, a priesthood that has become obsolete? And you get the sense that they had understood these implications, and they were annoyed about it. They were irritated. How dare you stand against what I have built my life upon, what I have put my dreams in, what I have worked so hard for. See, you didn't just become high priest. You had to be born in the right family. And then you had to get the right internship, right? You had to get the right job to become a little bit higher to get up there. And so they would spend their whole lives fighting and striving to climb over one another to get to that position of high priest. And these men come and they say, this office that you have worked so hard for, it's over. It has no further meaning. It has no further place because the great high priest has come. And his message is a message of grace and of goodness and of love towards you. And yet they were irritated. Not because they didn't recognize the grace, but because their hearts were so full of the things that they had built their life upon. This is how we all encounter the gospel. It is a good, it is a beautiful, it is a gracious message. But it's a message that requires us to lay down all of the authority, all of the security that we have built into our own lives. It's a message that requires us to cast down our crowns, as we are told in Revelation 4. And I look at my crowns, and I say, I've earned this crown, I've deserved this this crown. I've worked hard for the crowns that I have in this life, the places that I have gained authority, the places that I have been given respect. And yet we're called, as they were called, to cast down our crowns, to cast down those places that we have built up our own security, our own worth. And God tells us, he promises that he has both a greater worth to bestow upon us than we can imagine and even a greater authority than we thought that we could earn. The gospel is a call to be crucified with Christ, not that we may stay dead with him, but that we may be, we may be raised with him, that we may be glorified with him. In every age, in every culture, the way that this offense affects people It seems to change, but at its root, the offense of the gospel is the same. There's one line in Acts 4 that I think sums up more than any other the offense of the gospel in our present day, and that's verse 12. It says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's a bold claim. It's a claim that our culture really does not like. You can believe what you want to believe, but you cannot tell me what I should believe, what I need to believe. If you need that Christianity thing, if you need religion, that's fine, but don't tell me what I need. Don't tell me what I'm supposed to believe. This message is an affront to our culture. It is an affront to our pride and to our need to build up that security and authority and worth for ourselves. And yet, there's no other God that has the power to save, no political movement that has the power to save, no other system of belief. I'm not going to call anyone up to the altar right now, but it is a time to check our hearts. It's a time to 
check our lives and say, have I put my hope, have I put my faith in something that cannot save? It's something we do every week, something we should do every day to say, am I putting hope in something that ultimately cannot save, something that is weak and powerless in, com- in comparison to Christ who I have seen and known and have seen his power in my life? Have I put my faith in something that ultimately cannot save? If you have felt the weight of sin and of the miseries that come with this life as we've been reading in the Heidelberg Catechism, if you've looked at yourself and said, I, I, I keep trying to do the right thing and yet I do the wrong thing. I keep trying to look one way and yet I know that when I present myself this way, it is a lie to the world around me. If you have come face to face with your need, I would invite you. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I would invite you this morning, put your faith in that good and that glorious and that gracious name. We often hear people say that they love the teachings of Jesus. Well, he's a great moral teacher. They love his commands to love your neighbor. They love the golden rule. They love the command to you know, turn the other cheek. They don't think he's a savior, though. They don't think that he is truly God. They don't believe the miraculous claims. They try to separate the things that, that they can believe that jive with their system of belief. They try to separate the commands to love your neighbor from the commands to love the Lord your God. And yet, we know that, that ultimately they miss the greater part of the message. On the other hand, I want to commend those who recognize that beauty. You may be in this room and you may say, I, I don't get this yet, right? I don't believe in Christ. Maybe you were raised that way and you've at some point started to question your faith or even left your faith. Maybe you don't know if this is actually something that is for you, if you believe it, but you, you see some good in those moral teachings. You see some good in those commands and in the, in the peacefulness and the grace that he shows. I want to commend you for that because there is a certain level of honesty that's required to look at the teachings of a faith that you don't believe and to acknowledge that there are good things there. I'll admit, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house, I'm often impressed by their boldness. I don't know if you've had that experience that they come and it's just like, I wish I could be a little bit more bold like that. Now, I, I think there are some major issues with what you believe, but, but I can accept that there are some good things in other religions, right? God has given what we call common grace. He has given grace to those who do not know him. He has not left us to suffer fully under the weight of sin and the power of death when it came into the world. He has restrained it. He has pulled it back. He has allowed good things even to those who do not glorify him. And yet, I want to call you further. I want to call you deeper. I want you to see that that command to love your neighbor only makes sense, only works when you are loving the Lord your God. I want you to come and see, as Jesus commanded, that there is more. There is a greater beauty. There is a greater truth behind those things. It's like if you had a love of water. Right? My, my wife loves to swim. Um, I'm enjoy swimming and I'm terrible at it and so I very infrequently go with her but there are a lot of people who just love that right 
Um, you know, it's their favorite form of exercise. You love to swim, or you, you remember water balloon fights as a kid. And so you say, I love water, right? I love, you know, just being around it and swimming and all the fun. And if you don't realize that you're supposed to drink it, in the end, you're not going to make it long. And this is the way we receive the gospel, right? We can be tempted to receive it in the ways that are ultimately missing the very purpose that it's given, right? Jesus calls himself the fount of living water, the one to whom you come and you will not be thirsty again, the one who ultimately satisfies, and yet we are content to splash in the wave pool. There's a famous statement that was made by C.S. Lewis, although I think he got it from someone else before him, that you either receive Jesus as liar, as lunatic, or as Lord. You can say that he said a lot of great things, and yet there's no way really to deny the fact that he referred to himself as divine. The earliest and best witnesses that we have, the consistent textual witness that we have present from that time, is unanimous in saying Jesus was not seen, did not see himself merely as a good moral guy. He saw himself as the very son of God. All of the teachings to which we look to see him as moral are frequently taken from Old Testament examples. Applying these things not just simply to a man, but frequently from Psalms that speak of a greater hope, a greater David, a Messiah who is to come. We think of Jesus saying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He clearly, he applies these things to himself. And so if he is not God, and he has claimed to be, he is, he is a liar. And if he is a liar, then there is no reason that we should follow his moral teachings. If he is a liar, we should see him for what he is. Or if he believed what he was and yet was not truly God, then he is a lunatic. If someone came up to you on the street and said, I am God, you would not be inclined to believe what they told you. You would not be inclined to follow their teachings. And yet, if we see the beauty in Christ's teachings, if we see the truth and the goodness of what he says, we are compelled to receive him, either as liar, as lunatic, or as Lord if we see the truth in what he has said, a truth beyond really what any other philosopher has, has given us, what any other moral teacher has given, and yet we are content to call him a liar or a lunatic, we have missed the great truth, the great fullness of wisdom that he has given us that points to his truly being Lord. Now, I've heard a number of people in this church express a desire to reach out more to those outside our church, both individually and corporately. If we believe these things, if we believe Jesus to be who he said he was, that what he said was really true, that his miracles really happened, that he was really raised from the dead, we see the need to share that message, to, to love our neighbor, to share the gospel with them. And this is, in fact, really what this passage is pointing us to the boldness, the, the love of Peter and John for their neighbor that says, I know this is going to irritate you. I know you're going to be annoyed, but I know that you need to hear this. 
I know that in our culture, in our place, we can struggle with doing that. Our culture is not one that lends itself easily to sharing the gospel. Many of us don't know our neighbors. I've lived in a house for a number of months, and I've only very rarely seen my neighbors because we lock our doors and we stay inside and we hide ourselves off from the world around. It's a hard place. It's a hard situation to share our faith. And when we try to make, to make that step, it, it requires something of us. I want to take seriously, as we try to grow in this area, the reality that the way we view the world is going to be offensive to our culture. Right? As we try to grow in this way, as we try, as I think we all want to do, to grow in our ability and in our dedication to sharing our faith, we need to be real about the fact that this is going to be reacted to very frequently as an irritation, as an annoyance, as something that makes people angry. This message that we have that there is only one way of salvation, we have to understand that this will be annoying. In the past, there may have been a general understanding of sin, of brokenness, and yet in the present, in our day and age, to the growing number of non-religious people, it seems that the problem of sin has shifted to the problem of self-esteem. Not that self-esteem is a bad thing, not that self-love is a bad thing, but we don't realize the great need that we have. Our culture doesn't, has a hard time realizing that need. And in that context, this claim of exclusivity, of Christ being the only way, is a hard one to hear. And yet, as we study the message of Acts, we ought to find encouragement, not to soften the message of the gospel, but to rejoice that somehow, despite a church and despite a culture that fights the claims of Christ at every point, he is calling his own to himself. It can be intimidating when we look at Peter and John's boldness. Their message went beyond even the claim that salvation is in Christ alone. They say, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Their message is not merely, there's only one way to salvation. Their message was, there's only one way to salvation, and you killed him. This is the message that we don't want to bring. And we can say this as much to ourselves as, to they, as they could to them. My sin put Jesus on the cross. My sin led to Jesus suffering and dying, and yet this is the message we are given to preach, and we are told not that it is fundamentally a message of condemnation, but that this is a message of full and intense grace. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This statement occurs a few times in the Old Testament, and Jesus himself claims this passage to be about him. The cornerstone refers to a critical point in the architecture of a building where if you took the stone away, the building wouldn't stand. Right, there are a couple different ideas about where that particularly was thought to be and how that architecture worked in the first century context. 
But the idea is, if you take this one stone out, the whole building will crumble. And the message delivered to a people who had spent their whole lives trying to build a religious monarch, or not a monarchy, a religious political organization, a religious leadership is all of your work has missed the cornerstone. All of the times that you spent working and kind of getting a leg up on other people and trying to get to that position of high priest, you missed the cornerstone. All of the time that you spent sacrificing for people, you missed the cornerstone. And so we see we aren't called to make the gospel message palatable. Now this should be in some ways a grace to us. This should be a comfort. We aren't called to fix a broken message. We're called to, to preach a perfect message to a broken people. It's a hard thing to do. It is a challenging, it is a frightening thing to do. And yet, it is a comfort that we are called to preach a good and a gracious and a perfect message, though to imperfect people. Secondly, we aren't tasked with winning others to our faith by our perfect presentation of the gospel. This passage that we've been working with, it harkens back to Luke 21 that says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. The great promise here, other people responding to your sharing your faith, other people coming to know the Lord does not rest on your perfectly giving it to them. You aren't called to find that, that special way that will make them react just right. You aren't called to manipulate them, to try to understand them so deeply that, that you can do this. I mean, we ought to love them as we share our faith. We ought to, to have a great sense of empathy and sympathy with them. And yet, we are called to simply preach the gospel, to simply share that great and that glorious message. And we are told that the Spirit will work, that God will give a mouth and wisdom that none of our adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This message was given to the apostles, and yet this principle maintains its truth with us today, that God speaks and brings people to himself not because of our great ability, but despite our inability. And thirdly and finally, as Christians, we operate from a position of authority, this may seem unusual or even unbelievable. We don't feel authoritative when we share our faith, right? We feel questioned. We feel irritating. <laughs> and yet, what this passage points out is that actually, when we share our faith, we are emissaries of a kingdom that has an ultimately greater authority than anything this earth knows. Notice when the... Judges, when the high priest and his family, when they received what John and Peter had said, they were amazed, not because they were brilliant. They weren't amazed because of this incredible argument that they had made. They weren't even amazed at this amazing sign that had been done of this miracle. What they were amazed at was their boldness. Right? In any culture, 
is the general idea that a person of lower status will be deferential to one of a higher status, will be submissive to them, will show them the greater honor and will not speak with overly great boldness. And yet, in this context, we see John and Peter speaking not hatefully, not disrespectfully, but with a great boldness that says, we know the authority that we have. We know the one who has given me, who has given us the right to proclaim this message that none can deny and that none can refute because his kingdom is above every kingdom, because his rule is above every rule, because he is king of kings, because he is lord of lords. Do you recognize, do you know that when you interact with this world that you have that position of authority. You have that, that position as one sent by a king to a nation that desperately needs him, who desperately needs his help, who desperately needs his message. They may not receive it, they may be annoyed, they may be irritated, and yet we know God has given us a dignity and an authority and a worth that ought to give us great peace when we interact with this world, when we share our faith, when we love those around us. We do so knowing that we are already beloved. We are already called worthy. We are already put in a place of authority by the one who has authority over all things. Do we see ourselves that way? Do we know ourselves that way? This is the call of evangelism. It's not, have you done enough? It's not, have you reached out to enough people this week? It's not, did you make enough phone calls? Did you go to enough doors? The call of evangelism is, do you know who God has declared you to be? And is that working out in your life? Do you know the worth that he declares you to have? Do you know the authority he declares you to have? Do you know that when he looks at you, he calls you beloved? Has that affected your life?